0: The Ancient of Days, again a new series today in the book of Daniel, and we're going to start our passage today is right in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Daniel 1, 1 through 4. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his god and placed the vessels in the treasury of his god then the king commanded Ashpenaz his chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel both of the royal family and of the nobility youths without blemish a good appearance and skillful in all wisdom endowed with knowledge understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans.
1: Do you know where you are? Before coffee, that can be a hard question to answer. Do you know where you are? After this last weekend, driving Joshua down to Gordon and with the two and the from and everything else, that can be a hard question for me to answer at this point. But the fact is, it all starts, friends, with answering that question. Do you know where you are? Which way is north? Is the environment that you're in hostile or friendly? What should you be preparing yourself for? Everything begins with answering this question. Do you know where you are? And as we begin a new study today, like Kevin said, this is the question that confronts the human players in the drama that we're going to see unfold in front of us in the book of Daniel. Do you know where you are? Now, last week, we concluded our, our study of First Corinthians. We spent about eight months in the book, and today we're beginning this study in the Old Testament book of Daniel. And the question, do we know where we are? Well, we're moving to a completely new destination in space and time. So for the last eight months, we've been in Corinth, in Greece, in about the year 54 A.D. And now we're traveling about 12,000 miles and about 650 years away to Babylon, which is in modern Iraq, in about the year 605 B.C. But for us to understand the significance of that location and that place and time and space, we need and to understand the significance of Daniel and all that's going to happen in this book. We have to understand where we are and why we're there. And so to do so, we're going to zoom out and we're going to take a big picture look at not just biblical history, but the history of the world so that we can then zoom in and understand why we're here And why it's so significant. So the Bible begins, and all of history begins, in Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 1, with the statement, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I told you, we were zooming out. We're going all the way back to the beginning. So all the way at the beginning, God begins, And creates the heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1 and 2 are this beautiful, beautiful picture of God creating everything that is, everything that he made, ordering it for life and flourishing, and putting it all underneath his good reign. But the problem is it doesn't take very long for humanity to decide that we actually wanted to be God. That we didn't like God's reign. And so we wanted to be God, and so we come to Genesis 3, only three chapters into the history of all things, and we find a snake and a fruit and a tree and humanity's willful rebellion against God's rightful reign. And as a result, sin, disorder, chaos, and ultimately death enter into the world. And and then Genesis chapter 3, from 3 to 11, records humanity going from bad to worse. And the rebellion against God continues to intensify until we come here to Genesis chapter 11. And Genesis chapter 11 represents a pinnacle, a literal pinnacle, as we're going to see, and a figurative pinnacle of humanity's rebellion against God. So it's only nine verses long, so I'm going to read for us Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, which says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there. And it confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So the people here had settled in the plain of Shinar, it says, which is in modern day Iraq, and there they decided to build a literal stairway to heaven, and verse 4 makes clear what was their desire in doing it, to make a name for ourselves, we have new technologies, Our wisdom has created new technologies and abilities for us, and now we're going to build for ourselves a literal stairway to heaven, becoming great, if not greater, than God Himself. Maybe even we're building a stairway to heaven to overthrow God and exalt our name over His. Friends, the human rebellion that began in the garden continues, and it intensifies, and it reaches this literal and figurative pinnacle. And moreover, we find that this this tower and this rebellion was a continued rebellion against God's clear command in the creation. When God created everything and created humanity specifically in Genesis chapter 1, we read in Genesis 1.28, He said to humanity, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the command was fill the earth, but verse 4 says let's build a tower lest we be dispersed over. All the earth. Humanity is in rebellion against God. rebelling against His command. Saying we're going to set ourselves up against God because we now have the wisdom and the technology that we're going to build a stairway to heaven. We're going to be greater than God. We're not going to fill the earth. We're going to stay right here and use our wisdom and technology to aid us. And as a result, we, we heard God confuse their languages. It wasn't out of fear because they weren't going to be successful. It wasn't out of vindictiveness. God foiled their rebellion because He knows that humanity can't be God. He knows that we cannot flourish and find salvation without Him. So He confused their languages, which scattered them over the face of the earth and finally fulfilled the command to go fill the earth. But He did it so that they would know and they would learn who is God. Who is God alone? So on this place, the plain of Shinar, it came to be known as Babel, like it says. And yes, that's where we get our word Babel. Babel means a confusion of noises made by a number of voices. We get our word Babel from the name of this city and this attempt. And this place, Babel, came to represent the pinnacle of human rebellion. Humanity uniting itself and rebelling against God using all of its wisdom and all of its technology to make themselves like God, and you'll understand why this is so important in just a little while in the story, because the biblical narrative continues from here. And between Genesis 11 and 12, there's a gap of many years, and then what appears to be God, and then appears to be in some ways God being silent, but then God speaks in Genesis chapter 12. He, he calls a man named Abram, who will later change God will change his name to Abraham. He calls this man, in Genesis 12, 1-3, records, The Lord says to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to a land I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of earth shall be blessed. Now, friends, these three verses may be three of the most important verses to the moving forward of the narrative that we find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because these three verses announce the good news of God's plan to save all of humanity. The rest of the unfolding of the Old Testament and into the New Testament is really the unfolding of the promises in these three verses in Genesis chapter 12. And some other time we'll dig deep into them. But for the time being, the Apostle Paul said this about the promises God made to Abraham. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul writes, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. What we have here is, friends, God's plan to bless To save all the peoples, all the nations, he was going to do it by making promises to this man, Abraham, and the descendants of Abraham who would become the Jewish people. Through the offspring of Abraham, God was going to bring blessing and salvation to all of the world. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Through you, Abraham, through your offspring, and the offspring that will come from you, will come blessing to not just the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles, to all of the nations. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. So God calls one man, one nation, for the purpose of blessing all the nations. And we continue through the Old Testament narrative. We read that Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob... His name was eventually changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. And the 12 sons became the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, Abraham's descendants. And and the book of Genesis closes with a great famine that swept through the land of Canaan where the Israelites lived. And by God's providence, all the people of Israel were moved into Egypt under the reign of Pharaoh, a king, who was friendly to Israel's favorite son, Joseph. And one year ago, we were studying through the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus comes after all of those events because a new pharaoh, a new king, rose up in Egypt who didn't remember Joseph and they started to mistreat the descendants of Abraham. They started to mistreat the Israelites. And they enslaved them. And they impressed them. And so Israel cried out to God from their enslavement and their oppression. And the Lord, remembering His promises to Abraham, raised up a deliverer named Moses. And Moses came and the Lord used Moses to deliver His people out of Egypt and out of slavery. Ten plagues, Red Sea parting, wandering in the wilderness, manna from heaven, water from a rock. We read this and discussed this about a year ago as we studied together the book of Exodus. God was faithful to his promises. He said, I promise that through you, Abraham, and your descendants, I'm going to bless the world. And though you're in Egypt, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt, bring you to the land that I promised. And so he brought them out of Egypt. They wandered through the wilderness and he brought them to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, he made a covenant. Uh, He established a relationship with his people, giving them covenant laws and stipulations. And most famously, the Ten Commandments. And when he gave them the Ten Commandments and all of the laws and the stipulations, when he made his covenant with his people there at Sinai, he gave some dire warnings. He said, I'm making a relationship with you. Here's my covenant. Here are the rules. Here are the laws for your flourishing and for your good. Obey them. And if you don't, there will be consequences. I'm the king. Submit to my good and my perfect rule that you might flourish. And the ultimate consequence, if they didn't, was described in the book of Leviticus, verse 26:33. He said, I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheathe the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities a waste. God says, listen, I promised Abraham this land. I delivered you out of Egypt to possess this land. But if you continue in your rebellion, if you refuse my good reign, if you violate my covenant, I'm going to have to remove you from the very land that I promised to give you, that I delivered you from Egypt to have. So remain faithful to my covenant. And friends, despite the Lord's miraculous deliverance from Egypt, despite the covenant of steadfast love that he made with his people at Sinai, God's people, like all of us, continued in rebellion. They turned away to other gods. They rebelled against the good and life-giving reign of the Lord. And after occupying the promised land for a while, we read in the book of 1 Samuel that the people demanded, we want a human king just like all the nations, have a king. And God said to the prophet Samuel, it's that they've rejected me. They've rejected me as king. So he did give them a king. The first king was Saul, but Saul had no heart for the Lord. And so as a result, we hear the Lord eventually say to King Saul in First Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Your heart remains rebellious. And you're leading a rebellious people. I'm looking for a man whose heart is after me. who submitted to me. And so the Lord gave his people a new king. King David, a man after his own heart. And with David's reign, we read in the historical books, that Israel peaked in power and in faithfulness to the Lord. But after David's days, his son Solomon reigned, and while Solomon was given great wisdom by the Lord to reign with, and was used by the Lord to build a glorious temple to the name of the Lord, Solomon just didn't have the same heart for the Lord that his father David did. And as such, the nation of Israel began a low and slow decline into unfaithfulness. And it wasn't really that slow. It was more like dropping off a cliff. King Solomon died, and the ten northern tribes of Israel, they refused to submit to the reign of King Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And so there was a revolt, and the people of Abraham ended up divided. There ended up being two kingdoms. The the ten tribes of Israel that were to the north rebelled against the reign of the king. And the tribe of Judah to the south split off from them and remained faithful to the king. And so for over 200 years, there was a divided kingdom. There was the northern kingdom that came to be called Israel and the southern kingdom that came to be called Judah that still had the capital city of Jerusalem within it and the temple. And they became separate states. And we read through the historical books through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles of all of the kings that came. And friends, it was horrible. It is a horrible period of history because more often than not, both nations were reigned by rulers that were unfaithful to the Lord, that chased after other gods, that were unfaithful to the covenant. And it's during this period of Israel's history that we hear the prophets speak. Now, if you were to take your Bible right now and open it about to the middle, you'd probably end up in Psalms, maybe Proverbs. And then if you just flipped to the right a little bit, you'd find yourself smack in the middle of the prophets. There are 17 literary prophets, those who spoke to Israel and their words were written down for us and collected in these books, the 17 books of the prophets. The prophets spoke during this time, mostly of the divided kingdom, imploring the people to repent, return to the Lord, end your rebellion, return to the covenant. But they didn't. And ultimately, both the kingdoms were unfaithful to the Lord's reign. Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, was the first to fall. In 1722 B.C., the Assyrian nation came in and conquered, and they deported the northern tribe of Israel, scattering the people amongst the nations. And then they resettled Israel, the land of Israel, and the capital of Israel, which at that time was Samaria. They resettled it with Gentile people. People from the nations. And over history, over time, the people that remained, the Jewish people that remained, and the Gentiles that came in started to intermarry. And as a side note, that's why when we come to the New Testament, you hear all of the animosity from purely Jewish people towards those Samaritan people because they were considered to be half-breeds. Gentiles who had intermarried with the Jewish people during the time of the exile. And they were despised. And we read that animosity throughout our New Testament. And then we read about the fall and the resettlement. I guess not then, but we read about the fall and the resettlement of Israel in Second Kings chapter 17. And it's a stunning picture that I encourage you to read in its entirety at home. But for now, Second Kings chapter 17 verses 6 through 8 explains what happens. It says, in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried the Israelites away to Assyria, placed them in Hala and on the Habor and on the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh the king, and they had feared other gods. You see, Israel was fearing other gods. They were worshiping and obeying other gods. They did not submit themselves to the life-giving reign of the true God, but feared and chased after other gods. And as such, they were exiled. And 2 Kings 17, 18 concludes, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. The southern kingdom was all that remained, And you think, you would think that those in Judah would have learned. They saw what happened to Israel. They heard the prophets speaking, the Lord sending prophet after prophet after prophet. You think they would have remembered the goodness of the Lord who delivered them from their slavery in Egypt. But they didn't. And Judah, we read, remained rebellious, arrogant, and proud. And what happened to the ten tribes of Israel in the north eventually happened to Judah in the south. But friends, I want to make clear to you that even in the judgment the Lord brought against His people, God was just in His judgment. He was just in His judgment. and More than that, He was gracious in His judgment because, friends, He sent warning after warning After warning, His desire was not that judgment come. His desire was not that they be exiled. His desire was that they repent and they return and they find life. But they didn't. And friends, we remember that too. That a judgment will come. But God is gracious. And He sends warning after warning after warning to repent and turn to Him. And more than that for us, we know that He sent salvation. Salvation a way to be saved from that judgment through His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't be like Judah and Israel, but hear and turn and be saved. For that's the Gospel. But they did not listen. And so the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord sends Jeremiah to famously summarize the case against Judah. And he declares the specifics of the Lord's judgment and the case against them But more than that, he explains what's happening and why. And really helps us answer the question we started by asking, where are we? As we start this study, where are we? Listen to the words of Jeremiah chapter 25, starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I've spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You've neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all of His servants, the prophet's, saying, Turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods and to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet, you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes in the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, The voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. The grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So he lays it out. Here's the case against you, Judah. I sent you warning after warning, prophet after prophet, yet you remained unfaithful and stubborn. You violated my covenant. And so the verdict in his just judgment, the Lord is sending Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to destroy Jerusalem, to conquer Judah, and to bring the people of Judah into exile for 70 years. Now Babylon's conquest of Jude- and Judah's exile happened in stages. During the late 7th century B.C., Judah was conquered and became a vassal or a servant state, of Babylon. And then and in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem some of the most promising young men. And he had them to be trained in Babylonian literature and culture. And then finally, there was an attempted revolt against Babylon by the vassal king. And Nebuchadnezzar came in for 30 months set up a siege against Jerusalem, and in 587 B.C., he breached the city wall. Nebuchadnezzar then systematically broke down the wall of Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. The remaining people in Jerusalem and this area were either killed or exiled, and the just judgment of God against His people was fulfilled. So where are we? Where are we? Having understood all that history, friends, where are we today? We're in Babylon. The reading that Kevin read for us today from Daniel chapter 1, you heard it. It opened in chapter 1 and said, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, we just heard that name. Nebuchadnezzar, we just heard that name. King of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury. This was the first siege of Jerusalem before its ultimate destruction. This was in about 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar came, set siege, took some of the best and the brightest to train them in Babylonian culture. And that's what we read happened in verses 3 and 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So where are we? We're in Babylon. We're in Babylon. That's where this book starts. And why is it significant? This is significant because, friends, to understand that we're in Babylon. Now we can understand the actions of the characters here. Which direction should they go? How should they act? What should they do next? We need to understand where we are. To understand why this is unfolding as it does. And, friends, most importantly about this city of Babylon, what we need to understand is where it was located and why that was significant. You might have heard Kevin read for us. It was located on the plain of Shinar. The plain of Shinar. And for the astute amongst you, you might remember that Genesis chapter 11 talks about the plain of Shinar where the people of the world gathered in rebellion against God to build a great tower. And they named that place Babel. And later on, that same plain of Shinar and that same city had its name changed from Babel to Babylon. Babel was where a unified humanity gathered in opposition to God and decided to build a stairway to heaven to overthrow God. And this is where Daniel and his friends, the Jewish exiles, find themselves now. In Babylon, in the capital of the human rebellion and the locusts of humanity's collective defiance against the true God. Where are these Jewish exiles, friends? They are in the heart of enemy territory. They are squarely in the middle of a world and a culture at war with God. Do you know where you are? They're in Babylon. And so they must act accordingly. And church, we will find that this book of Daniel and the reactions of these exiles and the way they choose to live in Babylon is going to be so applicable to us because, friends, we need to answer the question, where are we today? And friends, where are we today? Our answer is the same answer as Daniel and his friends. We, right now, are in Babylon. And you go, whoa, whoa, Adam. That sounds a little harsh. A little judgmental there. But friends, that's not my judgment. That's actually God's judgment. That's what God says. The Apostle Peter wrote something that was so utterly shocking at the end of his first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, in his conclusion, he wrote, she, meaning the church, the church, Who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. She, the church at Babylon, sends greetings. Friends, as we're going to see in our study, the actual city of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, fell very suddenly and unpleasantly to the Persians in 539 B.C. And in fact, Peter's writing 630 years after the fall of the literal city of Babylon, and Peter is nowhere near the city. Of Babylon. When he writes this letter, he's writing from Rome. But yet, Peter writes, She, the church who is in Babylon where I am, sends greetings. Peter's referring to Rome as Babylon. He says, She, the church in the midst of Rome, is in the midst of the new Babylon. Just as the Jewish exiles then were in the midst of Babylon, Peter says, We are in the midst of Babylon. And friends, today we are in the midst of Babylon. Babylon has become a symbolic way scripturally to refer to a culture, a world order, in rebellion against God. In the Old Testament, Babylon was a city. In the New Testament, Babylon is a spirit. The spirit of Babylon is summarized well by the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was writing about Babylon in Isaiah 47.10 when he said, You felt secure in your wickedness, you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. You said in your heart, I am. There is no one beside me. In other words, I am God. There is no one beside me. The same human ingenuity and technology that was at work in the, human, in the first Babel is still at work today. Our wisdom and our knowledge, we're going to build ourselves a stairway to heaven. Human hearts are still in rebellion saying, I am God, there is none beside me. There's no one who can tell me what's right for me or what to do. No one can tell me what's right or wrong, good or evil. There is no one beside me. Friends, the city of Babylon may be long gone, but the spirit of Babylon lives on today. And when we get to the very end of the story, when we get to the very end of history, as recorded in the very end of Bible, the Bible, we get to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. And the very last chapters of Revelation, Revelation 18. And we read about the fall of Babylon. Now friends, the literal city of Babylon fell ages ago. When Revelation 18 writes about the fall of Babylon, they're not writing about a literal city. They're writing about the final conquest of a world system and a rebellion against God. Revelation 18 verses 2 and 3 we hear an angelic messenger declare he called out with a mighty voice fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Babylon is given as a picture of a mistress seducing people from the true God, enticing people to become drunk on power and pleasure and immorality and riches. And the pronouncement here is Babylon will fall. And friends, this Babylon that will fall is finally described at the end of Revelation 18 in the final verse. Verse 24, it says, And when she falls in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who've been slain on the earth. Friends, it's Babylon that slayed those who were faithful. It's Babylon who kills the prophets. It's Babylon who seduces those people away from the Lord. And Babylon that slays those who remain faithful to the Lord. Babylon has become a symbol of a world in oppression. A world in opposition, that is, to the Lord and His people. And Revelation 18 contains both a poetic and a prophetic description of the fall of a world system. that is at war with God. Revelation 18 gives us the final overthrow of our human rebellion against him, the complete destruction of our stairway to heaven, and our illusions of overcoming and overthrowing God, the overthrow of Babylon's a complete vindication that God is and was and ever shall be God alone. But until that day, until the prophecy of Revelation, Revelation 18 is fulfilled and Babylon's utterly and eternally destroyed at the return of Jesus Christ. Until that day, church, do you know where you are? You're in Babylon. Just like Daniel and his friends, we live as exiles in the midst of Babylon. We live in the middle of a world and a world system in rebellion, at war against the true God. A world that uses its knowledge and technology to try to make itself God. That with its so-called wisdom tries to undo what God has done and tries to undermine what God has declared. We live in a world system trying to seduce people away from the true God by making us drunk, on power and pleasure and immorality and riches. We live in a corrupted culture that cancels and kills the prophets and the saints, any who would dare to remain faithful. Do you know where you are, church? We are in Babylon. And until the day that Christ returns and the spirit of Babylon is finally and completely overthrown and destroyed, how then shall we live? And that's the question that we're going to ask as we approach the book of Daniel. What might we learn from the stories of Daniel and the other exiles living in the midst of Babylon in this book? What might we gather from the strange and the wonderful visions we're going to encounter in the second half of this book? And what should we understand about God? Who, as the title of the new sermon series announces, is revealed to us in the book of Daniel, As the Ancient of Days. What does that mean? And why is that significant to us, the people, living in the midst of Babylon? Church, we are exiles. And the first thing we have to answer, the first question is, where are we? Because only then can you and I answer, so which way is true north? Is the environment that we live in hostile or friendly? Should I cozy up to culture or be on guard? What should I be preparing myself for? Everything begins with the answer to the question, where are you? And understanding that, then church, how shall we live? Let's pray. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful to You in the midst of a a world in rebellion against you. It's not a new rebellion. It started in the garden. It has simply continued over time, ebbing and flowing. New babbles and new Babylon's arising here and there. A people, a culture, a world system in rebellion against the knowledge of the true God who created and who loves and who wants to redeem and make all things new. Father, teach us how to be faithful in the midst of such a world and such a culture. Make us faithful by the power of your Spirit and glorify your name in and through us, your people, now and forevermore.